Episode six. In this episode, we have Grandmaster Dennis Brown. We speak about being the first African-American to train at the Shaolin Temple, his love for Kung Fu, and his thoughts on the future of martial arts. Do you want to learn Muay Thai, the art of eight limbs? Check out my book, Muay Thai Mastery, a comprehensive step-by-step -step guide to the techniques of Muay Thai. It covers all the offensive, defensive, and clinching techniques of Muay Thai, as well as pad holding, training to be a fighter, and Muay Thai scoring. You can purchase it on Amazon. It's called Muay Thai Mastery. Dennis, you do Kung Fu for a living. <laughs> Everybody else goes to their job where they make their real living. And in the evenings, they do Kung Fu for fun or as a hobby or to learn how to fight or to stay in shape. You get to do, you get to get up every morning and do Tai Chi and do this and people pay you to do this. I, I really think it's a privilege and it irritates me when people who are running schools don't really appreciate it. It becomes all about the money. It becomes all about this. But I love watching the martial arts change people's lives. Welcome to the Martial Arts Junkies Podcast. All martial arts, all the time. This is where we talk with martial arts instructors, students, and competitors about teaching, training, competing, history, philosophy, and anything to do with martial arts. Now your hosts, Sherry Lorita and James Marler. Grandmaster Dennis Brown, how are you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm doing good, man. As good as anybody can do during these times that we have. Yes, sir. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, just so we can give our listeners a little bit of a background, can you tell us you know, where you're from, when you started learning martial arts, how old you were, that type of thing? You got an hour and a half for that? No, I, I've I'm got kidding. the whole day. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm, I like to say I'm from Washington, D.C. Uh, that's where I started my martial arts career. Uh, but uh, I, I've lived in Virginia. I've lived in West Virginia. I was a coal miners, one of those little kids that used to live beside the railroad track in West Virginia, you know, well, in a shack, all that story. Now, I don't want to go back to all of that, I guess. Okay. No running water, no lights, the whole nine yards, an outhouse. What, I, what year was that? That had to be uh, in the late, late, in the late 50s. Yeah, I, 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 I'm kind of saying it like it's funny because it is funny now, but it was nine kids living in a shack with no electricity, no running water, uh, going to the spring to bring water in to take a bath and an outhouse and that whole nine yards. I, I came up in West Virginia in my early years, I want to say uh, until I was about 10, 11, 12 years old, something like that. Uh, I, I lived uh, in West Virginia, but most people remember me as the guy, the, the Kung Fu guy in Washington, D.C., Okay. And that was when I finally moved to Washington. So uh, that's when my actual career started. Uh, my life started in, in, over there, but uh, my career in martial arts really picked up, uh, really started when I was in uh, Washington, D.C. And what year was that? Uh, actually, my first uh, start in martial arts was 1965. 1965. And I will tell you that briefly. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know whether I liked Kung Fu or it was no plan to do kung fu i was this 
kid there trying to hoping to get a good government job and live happily ever after because in washington dc nobody worried about college anything just get a good job good good government job and retire early and and, and live off your pension but uh, i lived in uh, washington dc with my mother and two brothers in a um, one-bedroom apartment in the heart of the ghetto <laughs> it's just a crazy crazy time and uh, uh didn't think that anything at all about martial arts. It wasn't until I graduated from high school in 65 and I went to Howard University back during that Martin Luther King, you know, marching days and all like that at Howard University. It was very controversial. But uh, I remember my first time that I ever even thought about martial arts was I heard that there was a, uh, a martial arts class being taught in the gym. And this isn't very uh, delightful, but I went over there thinking, eh, maybe I'll take some of this martial arts stuff but he was teaching judo. And I remember joining the class and I remember the first class, he had everybody run towards him as fast as he could. Judo guys remember this. And all of a sudden he'd flip everybody in there. And then the next guy come, he'd flip everybody. And just before me, some guy's leg broke. And I went back to the, to the dorm and said, okay, maybe martial arts, <laughs> martial arts is not for me. That was actually my first time ever thinking about martial arts. A lot of people don't know that. They said, you've always been in Kung Fu. Said, no, I, I always liked martial arts, but I, I didn't love it at that time. Uh, I actually, my first experience was going across the street to a middle school across from my, uh, my, my college dorm. And I found out there was a bunch of guys in the basement of a middle school that were practicing this Chinese martial arts. They called it Chun Fa then. It wasn't called Kung Fu because there was no Bruce Lee had come along yet or David Carradine in the desert. None of that stuff had happened. Yeah. And I remember going down there and there was, everybody had a cool name. There was Kung Fu Joe and, and Jimmy Yee and, you know, Peppy, Peppy Kung Fu Peppy. And they called him Peppy and all like that. And I remember I came and I sat back and watched it for a half an hour and they didn't have uniforms. They, they just got a chance to use that room. The school let them, use it a bunch of I, we to this day where i call them the vagabond warriors and i remember i was a little gutsy because at the end of the class they had a belt a little sash and they would say at the end of the class anybody who wants to try to get the sash has to fight the guy that has it and jimmy Yee had it the one chinese guy in the class everybody else was black except jimmy Yee. i said first of all what are you doing up here at university but they one by one everybody got up to try to take the belt from him and this guy who had never taken a class in martial arts at all said, I think I can take it. You know, I'm from the hood. I, I can fight, you know. Yeah. And all I can say is, to cut this real short, is he whipped my behind from one side of the room to the other side of the room. And I realized then I need to learn something. So, so that was really my so Jimmy Yee. Yeah. That was your instructor or is that just another guy there? No, he was just a guy in the class. I don't think there was any instructors. It was just a bunch of guys that got together and uh, – and studied Kung Fu. And I started going uh, with them because I actually had a car, I had a little Volkswagen. I was the only one that really had an automobile. And we would go up to New York every weekend when we got off or every other weekend, we would drive from DC to New York, five hours, they slept while I drove. And yeah. we would run from theater to theater watching Kung Fu movies. You know, back in the 60s, yeah. they had the Shaw Brothers and Run Run and Run Me Shaw and all those guys, they were pu putting out all these, uh, great movements by Chong Chair. The Chong Chair, he was the greatest director. He kind of made sure. And I'll tell you that later on in the story because I ended up doing a movie with him years later. 
but but we drive all the way to New York, watch five movies, and then load up with chashu bows in Chinatown. All of them were in Chinatown, and they'd sleep as I drove uh, all the way back. And then the next day, we would get up uh, Saturday morning uh, and Sunday morning, and we'd go up to uh, Meridian Park, and we'd practice all the stuff we saw on TV. That's when I really started Kung Fu. It, it wasn't my first formal um kung fu but that was when i started and it's a longer much longer story but you don't want to hear all the 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 stuff about us doing it to drums in the park and all that kind of stuff we thought we were doing kung fu all we were doing was mimicking what we saw jackie chan and and those guys doing yeah i i i i did that for for a while and then somewhere around 19 from 65 on i was uh, let's say 67 on i was this vagabond warrior with these guys never really understood, knew we weren't doing real Kung Fu. And I just realized I need to learn some real martial arts. And believe it or not, this Kung Fu guy, uh, there was a guy who had just come to Washington, D.C. in 1968 from Texas. And he had a really formal school. You know, you had to join and belts and whole thing. And I told my guy, I said, I love you. I still want to do the Kung Fu. But I went and joined June Rees school. So this Kung Fu guy, again, I'm giving you a couple of stories nobody else knows. Yeah, yeah, no I actually, my first formal class was with Grandmaster June Ree on 20th and L Street, the first school he opened. And I went down there and everybody was there, the Jeff Smiths, the, you know, all of his top fighters that went on to become like his full contact fighters. They were all Mike Coles, all those guys were in there. And I was this little guy who, vagabond warrior, decided I want to join this school. So I... I joined June Reed School, and that was actually my first formal class. Uh, and but I had been messing around in the parks, doing all kind of stuff. And finally, somewhere around '68, uh, when I joined that school, I remember I came in and I got my little orange belt. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. I actually got a real martial arts belt. Uh, but I used to get in there, and, and they would have everybody spar, and they'd be doing traditional Taekwondo. You know, Taekwondo yeah. is very strict. It, it has forms and katas and chunji and tosan and yugol and step by step. Yeah. Well, I was, I learned the first form in like one class because, you know, to, you, chunji was pretty simple, but to get your first belt, you had to do that little form. I watched it and I've been doing all this Kung Fu stuff and I got my, my, my belt and uh, I got up to spar. And the first thing I did is I went into some kung fu move, some 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 crazy move I had seen, you know, with the tiger claw and all that kind of stuff. And I never forget Master Reed coming over and told me, uh, "So you studied before?" I said, "Yeah, I'm a kung fu guy." He said, "We don't we don't do that stuff in here." And uh, <laughs> so I stayed with him for uh, quite a while, uh, which is about eight months of going in, and 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 most of the guys that were in the school, then Jeff Smith and everybody tells everybody. Dennis Brown started with us. So yeah, I was at your school eight or nine months. Uh, and my, my Kung Fu career actually started when I was leaving his school one night and I was driving up George Avenue, one of the main streets in, in DC. And I saw this school that said Tracy's Karate. You know, it was a big chain school that then one of the biggest chain school, I guess, in the country at that time. And in small letters, it said Kung Fu Tai Chi. I said, no, this can't be Kung Fu. It wasn't even in Chinatown. Yeah. yeah. And I walked in and that's when I met my first Kung Fu instructor, Master Lin. He was teaching there while working at the Peking restaurant serving tables, but he worked in the evening 
to make some money at the karate school. And he was teaching Tracy's karate. And I went in and said, I, I want to study this Kung Fu. He signed me up for the orange belt program. And I started doing my little orange belt classes and all like that. And finally a month into it, I said, I thought this was, you. what's that stuff in the window that says Kung Fu and Tai Chi? He said, the truth is, I don't know much karate. I'm actually a Chinese stylist, uh, but you know, there's no Chinese schools outside of Chinatown. And uh, he made me his first disciple. So I, as long as you keep getting your belts under Tracy so you can make your payment every month, because he was paid by <laughs> based on what his students got. Um, he said, I'll teach you Kung Fu. And uh, that actually started my first formal training after all the crazy stuff at Howard and the Vagabond guys in the park and my stint at June Reese. I actually, when people said, when did your Kung Fu career start? I said, 1970. I actually joined Tracy's Karate and started training with Grandmaster Willie Lin, Lin Shi Kwan, but we called him Willie Lin. And uh, that started my career. And I have been teaching Kung Fu every day except the holidays since 1971. Nice. So you were training at a Kempo school, but you were learning Kung Fu from your instructor then. Is that it? From my instructor. He didn't know any of the Kempo forms. There was a guy named Paul Olivas who actually ran the school, owned the school, owned the, uh, the branch okay. of Tracy's Karate. And he had hired Mr. Lin because he knew something. He came real cheap. And uh, I, I took the class and I, I tried it. And I tried to, tried to do my Kempo. But I wasn't very good at it. You know, I kept telling Mr. Lin, how can I learn some of this Kung Fu stuff? And, and uh, so he actually started teaching me in his basement. And eventually, Paul um, Olivas, Paul Olivas, he left and went somewhere else and turned the school over to Mr. Lin. And he immediately looked at me and said, well, who's going to teach it now? I said, I can't. So the only choice was to change it to um, Lin's Kung Fu School. And we kept the same building, real small place. I don't know, 600 square feet or something. It was so small, we had to teach all the classes outside in the park. Big enough for you to walk in and join, but not really big enough for all those Kung Fu jumping and flipping and all that stuff. So I, I, start, I started with him and, and uh, I became his first disciple. Didn't understand what that meant, but I was the first uh, student for his, for, of, of his. I joined the school, I think in 1970 uh, November of 1970, and by 71 in January, I was teaching introductory classes. Now, how old and were you I at that time? Teaching, oh, 1948 is when I was born. So, what does that make me about? I don't know, in the teens, 18, 17, something like that. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of, I, I, I was old enough to have just started my good government job. Okay. You know, my mother said, okay, if you're not going to go to school, you got to get a job. And as I told you, the, the reason for that story in the first part, in, in D.C., you didn't have to get a degree. If you had a government job in Washington, D.C., you worked for the government, you, you, that was a big deal. Yeah. And uh, so I was working there during the daytime and, and coming in in the afternoons and helping uh, Master Lynn uh, to teach the introductory classes. Nice. And before that, uh, I didn't have very much money at that time. <laughs> he would let me, um, you know, help him teach the introductory people, and uh, uh, he would he would teach me. But I was the only one uh, really studying with him the rate the pure kung fu uh, because he wasn't sure he wanted to that he wasn't sure Americans could really learn real kung fu. Let's just put it like that. You know, they had one school in Chinatown, but it wasn't really open to 
uh, guaylos to foreigners to to Americans. Yes. And you could go in there and you could learn certain things, but other things you saw going on in the back, you knew you weren't privy to that. And Mr. Lynn was wide open with it. And uh, so he decided that he wanted to, to do it full time. I convinced him, why are you over there working, serving tables? Why are you over there, you know, washing dishes at, at the Peking restaurant? They need Kung Fu here. So I convinced him to, uh, to quit that job <laughs> over a game of Mahjong, to quit that job. So I've, I've now quit my good government job to yeah. teach for you because that's the little part I left out, that little part. I ended up leaving my government job, <laughs> job to, teach, uh, to teach Kung Fu. And he was still working at the restaurant. And I said, if I'm willing to bite the bullet, so he did. And we opened the first uh, Lens Kung Fu School in Washington, D.C. And it was the first uh, Kung Fu school outside of Chinatown. There was one Kung Fu school, Chao Ga, you know, the Tiger Crane. And uh, he, I had studied a little bit with them, but you couldn't really learn much in Chinatown because there was separate ch- classes for for. Americans. And then there was the special classes that you didn't get to go to. Yeah. And so I, I remember I, I felt so happy. I'm teaching Kung Fu. Everybody thought I was great. My girlfriend, who later became my wife, they asked, what in the world are you doing? Uh, you, you started in the government at 17. I graduated from high school real early. I was one of those, one of those students. I graduated early from high school and I had been working in the government for a couple of years and I was just still a very young, young guy. And uh, even she was saying, because she knew we were going to get married, what are you going to do? You're going to teach Kung Fu? So, yeah, I'm going to teach Kung Fu. So I quit, bit the bullet, and started teaching Kung Fu for Mr. Lin. And by 1971, I was running this whole school. So I have run, I've uh, said, the people say, well, when did you actually start professionally running a martial arts school? It said 1971, November the 14th. They go, you remember that? I said, yes, I remember the contract <laughs> that we wrote. And I have been teaching. I, I like to joke and tell, but not joke, it's true. I've been teaching Kung Fu every day except holidays. And when I'm at one of the NASCAR tournaments or something like that, I, I don't take off. And I don't know if I've ever remember being sick, but I, I, my school has been open every week since that wow. when I was going to China. So by 1971, I was all in for teaching Kung Fu and, and uh, I discovered tournaments, karate tournaments. And that when I first started um, competing in karate tournaments. Now I didn't know, cause I knew Jeff Smith. I knew all the June Reed greats and Gordon Franks. I knew all of them. And to this day, people go, you know, you're a Kung Fu guy. How's, how's that you know all those, all of those June Reed people? And uh, I tell them, cause you have to ask them. But I competed in uh, all the big tournaments, the Battle of Atlanta. You know, I was I was flying around to the to the top tournaments in the country, the U.S. Open down there in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, competing. But there was it was almost all karate. There was almost no kung fu in the tournaments then. You know, the Joe Lewis's and and Chuck Norris's and all the greats there were competing. So I was competing at that time. But you know, there was only one or two of us. Cynthia Rothrock. We were we were all out there competing. Uh, doing these Kung Fu forms, uh, but it was all mixed together then. So I started my career doing that in the, in the 70s also. Now, how was Kung Fu like at the tournaments? Did you score well with against the karate guys, or how did that work since there was no it Kung was Fu a, divisions? 
it was a ball. It was, people complain now about competing. It was all thrown in together. I mean, the John Chung's were on the floor. George Chung, you know, George Chung was the beast. You had uh, a, a, a lot of great, uh, 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 a lot of great kung fu folks were out there, but only a few of them would make it to the nighttime show. Peter Morales uh, and myself, we'd make it up there. And I remember Cynthia was there and, and Christine Bannon had just started learning a little bit of Kung Fu at that time. And uh, I just liked being around superstars. And it didn't matter. It's kind of funny because uh, there weren't a lot of blacks competing on the circuit back then. I mean, the fighters, you know, you had those guys. Uh, but in forms, it was all Koreans, Japanese, it, just very few of, few of us out there. And uh, I remember going out and feeling like, oh, man, I'm never going to win anything. But then I was realized that, and Charlie Lee told me he's, this one day, he said, you ever remember being, feeling like you didn't belong? I said, no, you know, in Kung Fu, it, in martial arts, in the tournament, it, it didn't really matter. Somebody said, no, well, there was all kind of racism and stuff going on. I said, I don't remember. I just remember if you could fight, they loved you. Yeah. If you could form, we were brothers. You know, I said, I, I don't remember like that. And Charlie Lee, after he became really famous and now he's a big time lawyer now, he said, Dennis, you know, I remember when we were on the circuit together, we were always brothers, weren't we? I mean, I think we were ahead of our time. We, martial arts brought together people when other folks weren't coming together. And I told him, I, I spoke to him not, not long ago, a couple of weeks ago. And I said, Charlie, you know, that was, I still remember us sitting there just jaw jacking and people were talking about, you know, this guy ain't going to win because of this. He said, I don't, he said, I'm Korean, but I don't ever remember prejudice. Now, I'm not saying I'm too crazy. I didn't think it was out there. He said, but we were all, if you were one of the big dogs, you didn't worry about that. If you could fight yeah. and, and everybody respected your fighting, if your forms are good, we all hung out together. It was yeah. more like us against everybody else. So, you know, that was my first memories of, of, of martial arts. So when we first started talking and you said, well, you, 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 what do you want to be called? And all that, I said, you know, I never knew anything about all that. In Kung Fu, there wasn't uh, Koreans and then there was Chinese and Chinese didn't like the Koreans and the Koreans didn't like this. The black guys fought harder than the guy. Chuck Norris was my hero, you know? Yeah. And, and it was, and, but, but later on, so it was Nasty Anderson and all those guys. And I, I remember we respected guys for your, for your, for your talent, and for for your husper. I mean, if you got it, if you want to get in there and fight with the big dogs, win or lose, me and you are gonna bump hands and and we're gonna we're gonna go to dinner together. Yeah. So that was kind of how I got into, uh, you know, traveling and 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 find meeting so many of the martial artists. Now, what style of kung fu were you doing with uh, your instructor? Well, he. He originally told us it was uh, Northern Shaolin. Northern and Shaolin. I, that was, and I found out later, that's kind of vague, Mr. Lynch. Northern Shaolin is, you know, it's, it's out there. The system is actually called Tian Shan Pai, Sky and Mountain system. Okay. And I had been studying with Zhao Ga and those guys. And it was, this guy did praying mantis. And, and, and up in Boston, they did praying mantis. And this guy did tiger crane. And this guy did leopard. And I wanted to be one of those. You know, if you're in Kung Fu, you want it to be snake system snake and eagle shadow or something from the movies yeah and he said well we're tension pie and i said well what system is that he said sky and mountain see yeah yeah but yeah but what 
what style do we do? I want you, you understand. I want to, I want to be able to put on something, the dragon or something. Yeah. And he said, no, it's the Northern Shaolin. It's up there. It's an area of mountain range up near uh, Russia. Uh, and Tian Shan means sky and mountain system. There's a temple up there right along that border, uh, way up north. And so it has a lot of long range techniques and it's not the short stuff that you see in a lot of the tiger forms. But you, Dennis, most of the folks in DC that taught at that time were from Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, very few from t- Taiwan, but mostly Hong Kong. So they were doing mostly Southern styles. And mm-hmm. you know, the Southern styles are very close in and a, a lot of that stuff that I was coming into, the Northern st- st- style was much longer, much deeper stances. And, and I, I went into it thinking, but when do I get to do the snake form or the shadow form? And we finally got to some of those, but that was late in my career. Uh, but it, it was called Tian Shun Pai, Sky and Mountain. And uh, my, in fact, my instructor is still alive today. I mean, he's, I, I re- recently just saw him in New York. I went up to see him because he's saying, I'm, I'm finally retiring. And what his wife said, he's finally retiring. He's, he's, he can't be traveling all the place. He's getting older and all like that. And uh, um, he wants to make sure that you're, you're ready to carry it on. So Master Lin, I've been carrying it on since 1971. I, I have no reason to stop. But, uh, and I've always, since 1971, I, um, I've always considered Master Lin to be my instructor. You know, I've worked with a lot of people. Uh, that I met at tournaments, met in different cities, traveling and all like that. But I've never been to one of those guys that said, well, I've studied 15 different systems, of course. Yeah, I went to mainland China and studied with Wang Jinbao, who was the monkey king over there, the top monkey stylist. Uh, I went over and trained my instructor. I claim to be my instructor now, Wu Ben. Well, Wu Ben uh, was the top instructor in Beijing at the Beijing Institute. Mm-hmm. And I, we, when I went over to start training with him, uh, you know, he, we became very close because I went back as, you know, as I'll tell you later, two or three times. I've been back maybe 10 times, but I always take the students to his, his uh, temple, his, his school there at the Beijing Institute. I brought him to D.C. some years ago <laughs> and brought him to my U.S. Capital Classics tournament. And he said they don't speak a lot of English, just just enough, just yeah. enough. Uh, and. I brought him up on the stage and said, guys, this is my instructor. I brought him, he, I'm so honored he came all the way over here to, for my tournament. He brought a couple of his, his Beijing top athletes and I just wanted to bring him on the stage and introduce him. Ladies and gentlemen, please give him a round of applause for my instructor from Beijing. And they gave him a little golf clap. I mean, they didn't really scream and yell. And he looked up at me like, wow, that was kind of a downer. I mean, so then I looked at him and said, hold on, Shifu, hold on. I said, but now I know y'all don't think he's a little teeny guy. He doesn't look impressive. He's not a superstar performer or anything like that. He's just the top coach in all of China. Yeah. I said, and um, I'm going to tell you something now that's really going to impress you. I said, his top student was a guy named Li Liangjie. Li Liangjie, Li was his family name. And you know, in China, the family name is first. Yes. But when he came here, they switched his last name backwards and they called him Liang Jie Li. And the crowd, you hear him humming. I said, Liang Jie Li. And the place just erupted. Yeah. And he looked up at me and said, Cafe, what did you tell them? I said, Sir, I told them that you were Jet Li's teacher. <laughs> <laughs> 
And he looked at me and gave me a sour look at, as if to say, I've done all of these things in my life. I'm, I'm considered the top coach in all of China. And the only thing that will make him clap is Jet Li. I said, sir, I know you, you taught tons of superstars, but hey, in America, it's Jet Li. <laughs> so, you know, I, that, that was uh, uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the things that on the circuit, but the circuit was the reason I'm still out here doing it today. You know, I, I, all through the seventies, I got the chance to, to train with, um, you know, all, all the top guys that were out there competing and didn't always win. There was some great guys out there that uh, won a lot less than I, I mean, lost a lot less than I won, but it was about the camaraderie and stuff. And, you know, somebody called me that I was at the U S open a few weeks, uh, sometime back and they had, um, the, um, I got a call and they said, somebody wants you to do a, a, a thing for Jungo. I said, well, what is Jungo? Is Jungo TV? I said, well, what is that for? I said, I'm, I'm judging. I don't have time for that. Somebody said, it's George Chung. Oh. And I said, George Chung. Oh yeah. He does a big TV thing. And I don't know what that is. They said, oh, he wants to interview you for, for the, about the old days on the circuit. And I said, George Chung has something to do with television. I didn't know he was, you know, you know, I'm thinking that George Chung is kicking straight up in the air. That's the clown. That's what I knew. And, uh, and folks were saying, well, we've been trying to reach that guy. So he called me on my cell phone. He said, Dennis, George, are you doing something? He said, yeah, but forget about all that, man. We just, boy, how you doing? And I told somebody later, I said, you know, when you look at Cynthia Rothrock and all of the, all the greats that are out there now, I said, I remember we'd all be sitting at a lunch table and, and I just enjoyed the camaraderie of martial yeah. arts, the, the brotherhood, what we kind of like where we start, it was all just a brotherhood, a sisterhood. And people ask that in your, in your mid seventies now, why are you still going to tournaments? Why are you still giving a tournament? Why are you still judging that tournament? I said, I'm having the greatest time of my life. You know, the, the best people I've ever met in life was through um, uh, martial arts, but you know, so my first system was Tenshin Pai out of the, the mountains there. And I, I've been teaching that system my whole life. I mean, I've, I've obviously gone back to China maybe eight, nine times now, maybe more than that, uh, and studied with a lot of different instructors. Yeah. But I'm old school, old school martial artist. They, people say, well, you studied all these different things and, you know, 18 weapons, you know, this. Well, what, do you, what style do you consider yourself? I said, I'm Ten Shun Pai. Well, you've studied with a lot of great instructors over there. I said, no, 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 no. That, those are all people who taught me. My teacher is Master Willie Lin from 1971. Yeah. And for me, that's a very important thing because <clears throat> I'm a tra traditionalist in that sense. I love to study all kinds of stuff. I do Tai Chi. I do all kinds. I've gone to Chen Village and, and trained. We, we were the, not just the first group to ever go into the Shaolin Temple, the group that went with me, uh, that I went with uh, two or three years in, uh, uh, later in, and in the eighties, we were the first group to ever go into the Shaolin temple. We were the first group to ever go to Chen Jaguo. Chen Jaguo is the Chen family village where they say Tai Chi started. And uh, I get always, I get a lot of accolades about that and, and questions about that. And I said, oh no, no God. But my instructor is Lin Shi Quan. You know him as Willie Lin. And they got, I said, I'm a very traditionalist when it comes to that. Uh, what's your school? What do you teach? I said, I still teach his system at my school. Now, I'm not going to say I haven't 
taking some of that wushu stuff and laid it in for my guys to go to tournaments because it's like last year, you know, and all like that. Um, and, and you see my guys flipping and doing all that stuff on stage. And they said, well, can I come to your school and, and learn some of that? I said, if you come to my school, you'll be learning 10 Shun Pai. Because Master Lin told me to teach in 1971. And it's so funny. <laughs> His wife asked me one day, she said, are you still teaching Willie's uh, system? I said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure move. Uh, why? I said, because he told me when he stopped teaching to make sure the system stayed stayed in, in intact. And he never came back and told me to stop. And she just started laughing. She said, really? I said, no, it's as simple as that. He trusted me to become his senior disciple. They have what they call a Bai Shir ceremony. And he took me to China, to Taiwan. And there was 30 guys left from his original class back that had been taking this in the thirties and forties and fifties. He started in the forties. Um, it was a 30 of them that were still around, uh, or in that generation. Uh, and some of them were from the sixties and all, but they had a huge Bashir ceremony where all of them came out and did a whole ceremony with the robe and bowls and candles and the whole thing and declared me the the Eben, which is the number one disciple for this system worldwide. And it just messed me up so bad. <laughs> and they said, you know, we're, we all did this stuff in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, but you know, we're Chinese. Most of our kids don't want to do this. Yeah. Now that's, that's something a lot of people, they said our kids want to go on and become doctors, lawyers. They want to come to America, become, you know, scientists that they don't want to teach Kung Fu for a living. So, you know, you probably have taught more people, our teacher's system than we have. And so when Mr. Lin told me how many students they you've taught over the years and how many seniors you've created, we decided to bring you over and have a tea ceremony. They call it a Bai Shir ceremony where they make you officially the number one disciple uh, for the system that's still alive. And I told Mr. Lin, I don't need all that. She, he said, no. It, 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 and it was one of the greatest moments of my, my life. That wasn't long ago. That was a few years ago. And, um, you know, and, and again, folks ask me, well, why are you still teaching? And the, the joke is my instructor gave it to me to do. He left town and never told me to stop. So yeah. when Mr. Lynn comes in and, and, and Pat, his wife, she said, you know, he believes that Dennis, you know, he said, you're not going to stop. I said, no, I'm, your move his wife said i'm telling the truth if he comes in and says okay enough dennis you've been teaching for me since 1971 running my school since 1971 uh it's time you can you can stop turn it over so so if you ever did that i'd probably be angry but i said pat i would stop then but i'm having so much fun who gets to teach kung fu for a living Exactly. Come on, Jerry. <laughs> but you know, my, my daughters are saying, what does your dad do? You know, they're college guys. They got their degrees. They're out there doing stuff in New York. What does your dad do? Well, my dad is a Kung Fu teacher. And my kids always said, yes, always, they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. He does. So he does Kung Fu. Yeah. But what does he do for a living? So no, he, he's a, <laughs> he's a he Kung does. Fu teacher. And I think it's a blessing more than anything. I said, I, because of Nick Kokinas, you know, EFC, yeah. uh, I learned the business of it from Nick. And again, that's a crazy story too, because I was also 
Nick Kokinas' number one disciple. When he formed his board of directors, with that whole board that started professional stuff after he left June Reed, I was the first uh, the first uh, board member that, that, he, that he had. I was the first one. So I had about two years under him before he started, you know, the Valley and all those guys came on board and, and formed the EFC uh, thing that changed, I think, professional, the business of martial arts. It made martial arts a business yes. so that we could make a living uh, and do it for 40, 50, 60 years. But that's the side of the, the Kung Fu. Again, I don't talk that much about uh, uh, because the, the, that's, that's a whole nother story. Another story, because my school was in the ghetto. I mean, it was, it wasn't nowhere, it wasn't like outside of Chinatown. It was way up in the hood. And Mr. Lin trusted me to open the school there when I, when he said, okay, you take it over and run it. But, you know, he was there, but I ran everything. And um, I tell the guys that, you know, I remember where I was, it was a really bad drug di- district, not, not to blow a story up. But whenever they talked about uh, New York or drugs in Harlem, or when they talked about Chicago, there's a certain section of town. Whenever they talked about the, the worst part of D.C. for like crime and drugs, they would actually name a street, Ninth and Kennedy Street. I mean, Fifth and Kennedy Street. On not a not a building that corner right there is the worst drug corner in the in D.C. for drugs and gangs and all like that stuff. My school was on the corner of Fifth and Kennedy. <laughs> and the first time I met Nick Kokinas, who revolutionized, I think, martial arts schools, and that's why everybody does so well today and make decent livings, because he his background was Arthur Murray's, and that's another thing. He he drove up, he's a Greek guy. Yeah. With the pretty well you say you know you know Nick Kokinas and John. They got their white hair, premature white hair. He looks Greek. I mean he, he was young then, pulled up in a white Cadillac and I'm looking out my window at the school, the door, which always stays locked in that neighborhood. You had the buzz, we had to see and bring in. And I see him get out the car. I'm thinking, is he lost? And i never forget it. He walked in, he buzzed his way in and came in. And he told me this whole story about how he had helped build June Rhee and made June Rhee one of the biggest schools in the country and all like that. And uh, he had opened 30, 26 schools for June, with June Rhee, but, he, he noticed that June, we were doing those commercials. Nobody bothers me and everybody could quote them and all like that. He said, but I look on TV, every time I look on television, they're doing demonstrations or something like that. It's always you, you you're on TV more than, you get on TV more than we do and we're buying commercials. And we would, I was just wondering, how are you doing that? I said, I don't have any money. I don't have anything. I just, I do that. Y'all are all doing karate. I'm the only Kung Fu guy. So, you know, they always come, they like to see me doing all these funny weapons and jumping and all the stuff we do. I said, so we, we do a good demonstration. And Nick Kokinas told me uh, a week later that he was leaving June Rhee to open his own business to help run martial arts schools. And he wanted to know if, well, he, first he wanted to know if I would hire him. And I looked at him and looked around and said, do you know where you are? Look out the window. Does it look like I can afford you? You got the Cadillac, man. I ride the bike to school. <laughs> and But he invited me to come over. And he, at that time, he was running Arthur Murray's Dance Studios. Yeah. And he had started uh, breaking away from that. And he had started um, running those schools. June Ree had, had gone to take classes from him. 
And I think that's where, where Nick claims that's where Marshall Ballet came from when he was doing it to music. And uh, he said that June Reed hired him and, and I made June Reed schools huge. I'd like to take over your operation and I could do the same thing with you. Well, I turned him down. Uh, within six months, he started educational funding company, which was that all of those guys of Valley and all those guys that were uh, Steve Oliver, everybody came from that. I'm sitting at the table, but there was only three of us at first, but I was the first board member for the FC. So I got a chance for maybe two years to sit at the feet of Nick Coquinas. And I had a Kung Fu school, which was hard to run because no belts, nothing. There was no belts in Kung Fu back then. And, and watch him come up with hand gear, foot gear, you know, his system of running schools, all like that. And uh, he wanted me to hire him. And, you know, I, I said, what do you make at June Reed? It was something incredible. Something, at that time, like 100000 a year. And again, I'm sitting behind my little desk in the ghetto saying, are you Is this a joke? You, you want me to? He said, no, you, I'm not, I know you don't have the money, but if you'll take me on, I will, uh, I'll get you to a place where you'll be able to afford to pay me. And so I he came, he came to you then? He came to my school. Wow. And I, 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 I smiled at him and said, okay, thank you very much. I'll get back to you. And I told my wife, I said, this guy's got to be crazy. He sees me on TV a lot because Kung Fu is flashy. I mean, we get a lot of demonstrations and stuff, but he offered, he wanted me to start him up. And I just told him, I can't afford you. So he said, instead, I'm going to start my own group of 10 guys, my own board called Educational Funding Company. And I was, and to this day, if you look at their thing, they have me listed as their number one, their first board member, but all the greats, I mean, the Valley and, uh, just, just so many of them. I look at Steve Oliver. Steve Oliver's out there using a lot of that knowledge and growing great schools and 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 all those Kovars and all those guys. But they were all came in later. I was with him almost a year, and and I tell guys, I'm a kung fu guy, but I know how to run schools because kung fu schools, you know, they they didn't run like karate schools. They weren't very pro professionally run. No contracts. No payment monthly and all like that just come to the school but so the career has been and all through the the, the 70s uh, i was with uh, nick coquinas learning how to run schools and and to this day i have i've never quit i mean i've, I've never i've been to a board meeting since you since i did that thing on stage with with, with steve about steve I said but i still stop by the school I, I, I tell folks you don't ever hear about me but we call all the time and I, I told him, is my name still on the list? He goes, yes, but you should come over sometime. But, but he's doing his own thing now. But that was how I got started as a Kung Fu guy. And to this, I mean, tell, the, tell June Reed died when people always come up and say, but you know that guy, Dennis Brown, he was out there doing Kung Fu. His Kung Fu was strong. His Kung Fu did this, did that. There's a lot of good guys out there. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon Lee and all those guys. I said, but, but June Reed used to always say, but Dennis, Danny, you know, the only reason your Kung Fu is any good is because I taught you how to kick properly when I was in, when you were in Taekwondo. <laughs> and, and my students, when I would tell them that, they said, how dare he say that? I said, no, the, he's telling the truth. Kung Fu didn't have the really strong kicks. And I teach Kung Fu Northern style, yeah. uh, but they complain because my students 
they lock the side kick straight out. We do round kicks straight up. And we look like John and George Chum doing our Kung Fu when it comes to the kicks. But I said, no, I, I'll, t- I, I, I'll tell my instructor that. My kicks are, are got a lot of the Taekwondo uh, technique that I learned from uh, Jun Ri and all the guys that went to his school. And I still value him uh, before, uh, for that. And the, 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 that's why I had a big ceremony when he passed at the Capitol Classics. And people couldn't understand why I had his picture up everywhere. And I said, well, he was, he's one of the first instructors that I had. I wouldn't have but a short period of time, but, but yeah, I still, I still give him credit for teaching me how to have a strong foundation. Uh, I love Kung Fu. That's what I do. And I, I don't claim to be a Taekwondo black belt, even though I do have a Taekwondo black belt. Um, he, I said, but I don't claim to be a Taekwondo black belt. I'm just a Kung Fu guy. Uh, Mr. Reed gave me that black belt on the stage at the Capitol Classics before he died. He brought in all his top competitors, all his top guys that went on to become famous. He must have had 25 of them up on the stage. Can I can I get the mic, Dennis? And he went up on the stage. I'm sitting in the audience. He tells this whole story that I'm talking about where I started in first. You know, and I'm not this instructor, Mr. Lynn, yes. But I started him how to kick properly. And I said, and... Uh, he came up on the stage. The only time I cried on the stage, he said, I'm presenting you with a black belt in Taekwondo. I said, oh, Mr. Ray, I never finished it. He said, no, you never finished it. But the only reason that you're here today is because you started with me. And uh, so I still claim him. People say, who is your instructor? It's, it's Master Lin. That's my Kung Fu instructor. Uh, but Jun Ri was a great influence on me. So what was your best memory of uh, Master Ri then? Working out with him, you know, yeah. uh, I, I wasn't a big deal. I wasn't one of his stars by any stretch of the, mag- of the imagination, but I loved his. I loved his love of the arts. You know, people say, "Oh, he had all them schools. He was about money. He was about this." The guys know June Reed loved the martial arts, and he turned out some of the greatest guys out there. Uh, and I said, I still claim to be one of them. And I said, I don't ever say, well, he wasn't really my instructor. I was just there. Said no, my a lot of my foundation when I left the vagabonds, working out in the little school in the park, I went to him first, and the little period of time I was with him, uh, I think you know can can affect you the rest of your rest of your life, uh, your 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 um, your love of the art. He he made me love the art. So I, I I I did a lot of demonstrations with him. He would he would call me and say, let's do something together, Taekwondo and Kung Fu, Yin Yang, and I'd come out and do it. I, I just always liked that. And he was a very humble person too for, for the reputation that he had. I mean, everybody knew Grandmaster June Ree, but he would invite me over his house and we'd go down in his basement and do the daily dozen, the 12 exercises that he created. And uh, quite as it was kept, his kids would come over early, early, early in the morning to my school and do Kung Fu. Now. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that I'm gonna get in trouble now, but uh, Jimmy, if you're out there, you know you and you and Mimi. Uh, I think they actually went to China before me, and they actually learned some kung fu form. So he was a very open-minded person. Uh, I just I just like the the martial. Arts. I like I like the love of the art that he had, and he stayed with it. I mean, he could have done other things. I'm sure he could have went on to become anything he wanted to become, because it wasn't just his taekwondo. He was just a, a, a doer. And, uh, 
And again, I get a lot of that, I think, that drive from watching what he created. And uh, so that's part of my, my background too. And if, if anybody asks you any difference, I'm going to say, I don't know what he's telling you. I'm just a Kung Fu guy. I, I do Kung, <laughs> I do Kung Fu and, and that's what I'll always do. Um, and I won't, I won't insult some of my Taekwondo brothers and, and stuff like that by saying, yeah, I'm a Taekwondo guy also. And they'll go, come on, Dennis. Now, I, not insist that you guys, that's my foundation. That's where I was born in Tai Chi and in tai, the, the Taekwondo. Now, has he, did he say anything like impactful that maybe, you know, uh, affected your training or your future later on? Who is that, Jun Ri or Mr. Jun, Lin? Jun, well, either one, yeah. Jun, well, Jun Ri, you know, it, you know, I don't think it's any one thing that he uh, he said so much as following what he did. I mean, I'd watch him. I know he got up to talk about the Daily Dozen up until the day he died. And, and when he was real young, I remember, he was doing the same thing. He'd get up and do 200 push-ups every morning and 200 sit-ups every morning. And he would work his forms and he, just that drive. I never forgot that because, you know, when, when I first went, I got a chance to go to his home and invite him to his house. I used to see, but probably three months before he died, he had called me and he was sick. I mean, before he went into the home and all like that. And he was talking about, I can't do very much. And I still can't kick way up in there and all like that. He said, but you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to come up on the stage at Chapel Classics one more time. And let's, let's both of us get together, do a hundred sit-ups, and then we can flip over and knock out a hundred push-ups. And this is when he was, uh-oh, hold on. <laughs> I think I lost my ear. This is, this is when he was, had gotten really, you know, he was, he, he was getting older. Yeah. And he wanted to, me to come up on the stage and the both of us do a hundred sit-ups and a hundred push-ups together. And you know why we didn't do it? I said, Mr. You're not going to embarrass me. <laughs> I said, I've seen you knock out that hundred push-ups, and I've seen you do the the, the hundred uh, crunches and, and all like that, and then hold one leg straight up in there and drop in a split. I said, I can't do that back then. I can't do that now, and so it never got done. But you know, I think back now, I wish I had done it because it would have been kind of cool. Because uh, you know. He uh, and, and then he started. He started a lot of. I think I like to think we had influence on him because you know I was also a Tai Chi instructor, not just Kung Fu. I've always done Tai Chi, uh, not like everybody now. It's really big now, uh, but um, it wasn't back in in the day. In fact, yeah. the last time I got invited to China was the the, the week, uh, the a couple of months before the pandemic hit. I had just okay. gotten back from China. I got invited over there. I am now the chairman for Wong Chi Her Tai Chi Chuan for that province in America. Nice. The, Congratulations. The, the, number, the, the number three guy, number, number two guy in Chi's administra administration came here to see me with his wife and gave me a certificate saying, we recognize you as our chairman for our style of Tai Chi in America. And they came up on this, uh, they, 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 uh, what took me to the embassy and, and made it official. I got to sit in the chair where Obama and all the presidents and everybody sat. And me and my wife, we felt like, and we got these pictures sitting with, with all these dignitaries. And I said, yes, I'm just a, I'm just a little Kung Fu guy. 
And they said, no, but we know that you've been teaching Tai Chi. Nobody recognizes your Tai Chi. And we wanted to, you to understand that. So I went over there for, they flew me over there. I was there almost a month at, on their dime. And I mean, I met probably everybody that you can, you can meet, not doing Kung Fu, but just dignitaries and folks. And they kept saying, well, reason that we brought you over, we have a reason for it. And I said, well, why is that? He said, we read something that you wrote a year or so ago. What is that? He said, you said that America changes every 10 years. It was in the 40s or something when the guys were coming back from the war. They came back from the war in the, in, in the uh, 40s. They brought judo from Japan. So in the early days, the soldiers back in those days, they weren't doing taekwondo and all that stuff. They were doing judo. You agree? In the 50s? They, they were there in the 40s. They, so yeah, in the 50s it was. I, I remember a lot of people did judo. It was the biggest thing going. They think judo just reappeared, but it was big with the soldiers. He said, but then at the, at the Korean conflict, it wasn't a war. We still call it the Korean conflict. That's when Jun Ri came over yeah. and all the Koreans and, you know, the Kims and all. They came over and the, 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 the 60s was all about Taekwondo. I said, you're right. That's when I took Taekwondo. He said, and then, in the, in, 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 and he said, and you said in the 70s, when you met Mr. Lin, that's when, when Bruce Lee had appeared and Jackie Chan was doing stuff and uh, Kane was walking through the desert with his hat and, you know, and, and doing all that stuff. And Kung Fu came, became the biggest thing that there was. Yeah. And we thought, wow, who would ever do anything beside Kung Fu? He said, but then all of a sudden, the 80s rolled around and everybody was doing talking about Ninja Turtles. Japanese, that was the decade, decade of, if you're going to run a martial arts school, Japanese martial arts was it. He said, and, and through the 80s, and we thought, that's it. Forget everybody else. You know, everybody's school going to close up. You might as well get a samurai sword because you won't make any money. The 90s became the, 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 <laughs> the decade of Taibo. You know, everybody was jumping around. You know, okay, what school you were? You had to have some Taibo or some aerobic karate or something in your school. Yeah. And Billy Blanks turned it to, to the 90s. And we thought, well, we're going to be doing, you know, that kind of karate forever. And then the century changed and it became what? Jiu-Jitsu. Not just Jiu-Jitsu, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. And then right around when it changed again, somewhere around 2010, it became MMA. Oh, we thought it was going to be, you know, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. All of them are still big. I mean, Japanese, Kung Fu, Taekwondo, every one of those systems is still big. But this became the decade of UFC, you know, MMA. And all of a sudden, we thought nobody will ever change it. All the karate schools are going to close up. If you're not teaching MMA, forget about it. Now, MMA is still just like the rest. It's the biggest thing going, and I got to do some stuff. I got to be banging in my school that nobody's coming. But now we have changed the decade again, and I predicted that everybody is in the computers now. Everybody, when they go to school, they learn online. Their, their brains are getting fried. They're, they're locked into this. Everything's in the head now. They need another type of self-defense. I said, I am predicting that the next biggest thing, none of those other systems are gonna go away. Everyone I named is still here. 
and doing well. But this is going to be the decade of Tai Chi Chuan, internal arts. Go to California, come to D.C., go. Everybody is doing Tai Chi and they're floating and meditating because America needs that. Because of that, they spent $19,000 flying me and my wife to Herbei and to, to uh, Beijing to speak in front of almost 2,000 martial arts instructors about why I predict that Tai Chi Chuan is going to be internal arts are going to be one of the biggest things in the next decade. And I don't care where you go, yoga is still going to be around, but Tai Chi Chuan is going to be huge. I found myself sitting on a stage, just mesmerized, riding around in limos. I'll tell you that story some other time. I mean, I met everybody that you could you could think of, and they were saying because we actually had an Olympics in China, yeah, and we could not get our martial arts at the Olympics. Taekwondo is in the Olympics. Koreans have it. Japanese judo is in the Olympics. And they, they, they were crazy about that. And we actually had an Olympics in China. And Kung Fu didn't get picked up. They, they, they put in for it, but they didn't get it. And they yeah. said that really bothered us. What is it about our system of Kung Fu in China? And so we thought about what you said. And so we flew you over here. I mean, they put me in. Oh, I went everywhere in limos. I was on all the TV shows. I thought I was hot stuff. But just a second, I forgot I was this little guy from the hood. <laughs> and I'm looking at my wife going, this is really slick, you know. Uh, and they came to my tournament and they came to America and stayed a week or two and took me around to all the embassies and stuff and said, we're talking to this guy because we, we want to find out what he's said. What, what are you saying? You're actually a martial artist who's been doing martial arts in America for 40 or 50 years. So when we hear you say Tai Chi Chuan may be big in America, so guys, it's only at that time it was 2000, I think just because it's been, it was 2000, it hadn't become 2001 yet. It's been two year, years since I had my tournament, which they came to. Um, but they had picked up on that. I don't know how they heard it. I guess I was running my mouth. I talk a lot. Um, but they, they, they rolled everything out. I mean, every place we went, we were sitting at a table with 15 people from every city. And they would say, tell them, you know, your thing. And I, I did the same thing I did with you. In the 50s, it was this. In the 60s, America's we're different than everybody else. Every so, you know, we, we, we're the only generation that will go from baggy pants with teenagers walking around, big old baggy pants, hanging down on their butts, to skinny jeans. I said, how, how do you go from baggy jeans to skinny jeans? And then there's yeah. something else. I said, uh, Americans don't want to do the same thing too long. They don't want to, most importantly, they don't want to do what their father did. You know, yeah. they want their own way of dressing. They want their own way of dancing. Whatever dance that was, my generation don't want to do that. I said, so when you're dealing with America, they said, we, we, we know we can never get our system of martial arts and Olympics without America. Yeah. If America is in on it, but there's no Kung Fu big Kung Fu schools. There's not a lot of those around. They're not organized. And we wanted to talk to you because we, we read what you said. I said, all right, I mean, I'm really shocked. Not impressed. You didn't read stuff. I guess they got Black Belt Magazine or somebody or somebody or probably it's one of the magazines and, and saw that quote. And um, so now, and, and so they ended up coming to my tournament. The last one I gave uh, before this pandemic hit, they, they came 
from her bay, brought a delegation of eight people and came up on the stage and gave me this award and said that we're going to be dependent on you. And I said, told my wife, have I opened my mouth one time too many? I can't, I can't guarantee Tai Chi is going to be huge, but it is. I'm just surprised uh, how many karate schools now are calling me saying, I want to teach some meditation. You know, we, we know how to do Zazen. We can sit and do sitting meditation. We've always done that in our karate schools. We know the importance of meditation, but people like the fact that Tai Chi, I don't teach it as a strict meditation. I actually teach the fighting aspects of it, which makes it available for everybody. So, you know, it's, it's been a, a, a drive uh, through this from the, from the little guy. <laughs> I like to do it with the Vagabond Warriors up to, you know, sitting at the Capitol with, 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 with the president's people uh, talking about Kung Fu. I mean, yeah. Kung Fu. And, and you know, I tell my daughter, I don't even have a real job. I, I teach Kung Fu for a living. Now, you were in China in 2019. That was the last time you were there? Yeah, I, I'd gone the year before the pandemic hit. So it had to be like 2019, I guess. We had, now, we had just... We had, mm-hmm. Now, 2019, and the first time you went was like 1983 or 84. Was that it? I think it was 83. I guess I get so confused. I, I started my tournament in 82. And I keep getting those dates mixed up. That I started the tournament in 82. I didn't go to China until 83. I didn't do the movie until it, it all goes go together. But it was about, about 80, I would say 83. It couldn't have been 82 because I, 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 I couldn't have given my tournament. Now, in 83, so, did you have any culture shock when you went to China? <laughs> you wouldn't even ask that. You know. <laughs> I know, but I... I just, uh, it was crazy. I mean, they did, again, they didn't just bring us to China. We never, we thought... We knew we were one of the first groups of Americans to go because we were all from the tournament circuit. But we never expected to see what we saw. They looked at it as if we got the first group of Americans. These are, they're winning all the tournaments. They're on the national circuit. They, we're going to just label them America's top people. That way, if we don't look bad, they can say, well, you see, America's best. Is not I, I, I think it had to be back in their head. So, but they brought a lot of the top forms people over there. We were all basically forms people. They weren't forms and weapons. We weren't fighters. And when we, when we got there, they met us at the airport, but they didn't take us to the place we were going to train. It happened to be the time that there was, this was the national championship. They had a national championship for martial arts mm-hmm. down in Herfei. In, um, in, 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 in her fave province. And all the top athletes from all the different provinces all over China came there once every five years or something to select the, the top forms guide of every different style, the top Tai Chi style, uh, Wu, Yang, Bent, all the different styles. The, anything that they did, every weapon, the number one guy in the country, they were all there competing for the championship and we sat there for seven days and watched the top people in all of china doing kung fu the specialists and then they put us on a train and and it took two days and took us to nanjing and put us up in a military base because at that time you know they were still walking around with the green hat and the green jacket and the green pants 
and the machine guns. It was yeah. that China. It's not the China of today. Yeah. And don't leave the don't leave the bar, don't leave the field without us and all like that. And they they brought us in and had us work out and maybe didn't use these words, but the inference was so we hear that you guys on the tournament circuit are the top guys in America. So now I never said that, George Shungle, I mean, uh, uh, Paul, uh, uh, Peter Morales is going, of course we are, you know, and, and uh, I've said, guys, don't get me into this. I don't even do the wushu. You guys at least done some wushu with, with, with Roger Tong and those guys. I, don't, I do just traditional Kung Fu. Well, they sat down and said, what do you want to learn? And whatever we said we want to learn, I want to learn a, a mantis form. I want to learn a tiger form. I want to learn, you know, Wing Chun. I want to learn whatever. And I, I had already learned 18 weapons or so before then, all through in America. And I saw one that I had never seen before, this rope dart, you know, long piece of steel on the end of a nine-foot rope. And I got written up in the magazines claiming that I was the first one to do it. He brought it to him. I don't know that, but. I got credit for it. But I went and said, I've learned all those other weapons. I want to learn that weapon. And what they did, I want to learn broadsword. I want to learn this. I want to learn this over and forth. And they brought in the guy, not somebody from the competition who had competed, which means he was one of the best in China. They only brought in the guys who won first place Yeah. with all of those divisions. So my broadsword was the guy who had just become the national champion of broadsword. They brought in the guy that did rope dart that I had never seen. And they said, yeah, did you see him? He won for, he's the national champion. So we got a chance to, and I humbly say this with, with, without the, all the joking, we got a chance to learn from probably the top Chinese stylists of, of that time yeah. uh, at, at, the, at, the, at the Institute. And uh, we were trying to learn everything that you can learn. I mean, on the way home, I'm, I'm trying to do Hermé daggers too two long weapons which look like sewing, sewing needles or something. And it's been, I did, I learned so much stuff that by the time I got back, I couldn't remember. I was afraid I wasn't going to remember stuff. So I took like 15 students. And said, I'm going to teach you this form and you teach this because I'm going to forget them. And one day I'm going to come back and you got to get, the only thing I practiced all the time was the rope dot because it was so uh, strange. And I got me on the cover of the first Chinese magazine. And to this day, they, they still, Dennis Brown, you know, he started Rope Dot in America. So, yeah, but he didn't start the form. You guys don't ever get me in trouble because I got to go back. And I don't want them to read somewhere and say, here's something new. Dennis Brown started. I said, no, guys, there's a, there's a guy out there now that's doing it. And he's amazing. He calls himself Rope Dot something. And uh, the first time I saw him performing, he looked out and saw me and he said, oh, I, I just love your work. And I said, no, stop, stop. You're way better than me. And and I'm just impressed with you. I'm I'm old now, and I I don't have any any problem with you saying that you saw me. I I was privileged to be the one who brought it back, and I I won a lot of tournaments with it because it was new. Nobody ever. I said, but I've seen you. You have done stuff that I could never do. But that was that that was a when we went to China back in in eighty. I guess it was eighty. Tournament was eighty two. I guess eighty three or something like that. Um, we learned so much stuff, but we were, we were typical Americans. I want that. And I would, what do you want to learn? Well, I want some of that and I want some of this and I want some of this. And I want some, some of that. And, but it was, it was the hardest training I would tell you that I've, I've ever had in my life. 
I had never done wushu. I was only a traditional uh, kung fu stylist. But all so the rest of the guys had already been doing. It. You didn't pull out your iPhone and record everything. Nah. <laughs> I wish I would. Actually, actually, I did have a little camera. Yeah. But they wouldn't let you film it. They was oh really? If we film it, you won't learn it. This uh, way, you would you'll go out there and do it a hundred times. Because I had like I think I came home with eighteen forms. I spent, I was on the plane still trying to remember forms. If I can just get home so I can get my camera so somebody can film this because I'm going to forget a lot of this stuff. And, you know, we were being typical Americans. We were being greedy. But I, I saw things that that we saw things in China then as the first group to go over that in terms of martial arts or anything else that people will never see. I mean, Mao statues were still everywhere. We saw executions in the square. Um, we saw... Uh, you know, we, we knew that everybody had three outfits. They either had the blue hat, blue pants, and the blue top, or they had the gray hat, the gray, you know, little what we call the Mao hat. And that. Yeah. Or you had the the, uh, uh, the, the, the navy color, color one of it. And uh, we saw the poor folks. Uh, you, you know, we saw a China that, you know, that people, I tell people, I don't know how to describe it. You'll never see that this was Mao's China. We went in just post mile he was yeah. gone but he was he was everywhere i mean yeah. the ladies could buy one dress a year pants men got to buy one pair of pants then we'd go to restaurants because we were americans so we a little bit celebrity going on we'd go in a restaurant and we'd have the team the chinese guys that we had become friends with you know hanging out becoming boys they would take us downtown to eat or something and they wanted to take us to show off their nice restaurants and the first shocking thing that I can tell you that that really got me, we went down and we were going, well, we, we Americans, we got money. We got to take you guys to eat. None of them had big money. I mean, they were barely making it. And we we're going to take us to a nice restaurant. So they took us to a nice restaurant. And we said, okay, go in. And we went to go up the steps to it because we could see this was nice. Everybody was dressed nice. And they went over and leaned against the wall. They said, no, go. This is the best restaurant. You'll you love the food and all like that. And that's when... It, it almost tore my heart. They said, look, I said, y'all not going in? No, no, cafe, you guys go, you go. I said, oh, well, we'll, no, I get it. We'll, no, we're going to pay for it. And it's not that. They pointed to the sign in China, in China. There's a big sign that said no dogs and no Chinese allowed. <laughs> I almost, I said, what? We're in China. They said, no, this is the Chinese with money. We, they mean like, not the rich Chinese, they mean regular Chinese, no? I said, no, but the sign says no Chinese and no dogs. No, no dogs, and they put it in that order, no dogs and no Chinese. And we said, no, we're not gonna do that. Because we've been training with these guys, you know, when you, you start working on a group of guys for months, you, they become your friends. And we had, and I was so proud of the, the American guys because we looked at them and said, "If you can't go in, we're not going. Where, where can you eat? Where, where, where would you go eat? Well, we're going to go eat down someplace else, not far away from here, but you don't want to go there. It's a little dinky street and all that, and it's not clean. It's dirty. We said, "No, where do you, wherever you guys want to eat, we're going to eat." And we followed them. We turned out some little narrow street where people said have no shoes on. It was really poor section. I mean, maybe it was made when they had horse and buggies. The cars couldn't even get down. And we went into this little place, some somebody's mother, and it was it wasn't dirty, 
but it was very rustic. And yeah. they said, she makes the best this, this, this. And I said, well, order what you got. And we had the best Chinese meal we ever had. And that's when these guys became our real friends. We said, and they said, you know, we just, why would you guys do that? I said, you guys, we, we want to teach you something about Americans also. This is who we are. If you guys can't go in, Peter Morales, P. Da, they, he, he's, he's, he's Mexican. I'm black. Nuna, he's, he's white. We got the French Canadian girl. We called her Bao Bao. Well, the coach called me coffee because coffee means brown or chocolate. And I'm brown and I was only the only chocolate guy in the group. Bao Bao was French Canadian, really fair skin. I mean, really pale skin, but she's a little chubby. And they have this big dough thing they call Bao Bao. It's a, it's a kind of doughy thing. Peter, they said, tell me about Peter. He's Mexican. What is, what, what does he, what does he like to eat? I said, he's Mexican. They like spicy food. They said, okay, we call him Pida. Pida, that's like the chocolate eggs, you know, thousand-year-old eggs that, that's black when they bury them in the ground, real spicy. Okay, yeah, he's Pida. And Newt and Norman was from Colorado. Not a lot of sun all year long. He spent a lot of time in the snow, I guess. But he was really white, white. He and I used to stand together, and people would come up and pluck my hair out and pluck his hair out. I said, who's funnier looking to them, me or you? Yeah. But he called him, he said, his name is Norman. I said, yeah, Norman. He said, okay, we call him Nuna. That's milk. So people thought it was so offensive when they would, he, we'd be out there working and the coach would go, coffee. And the people would go, oh no, you can't call a black guy chocolate. <laughs> and I said, no, no, that's my coach. I said, well, he's calling him Nuna. He don't look like milk. And and she's a little chubby, but why would he call her Doe Doe Girl? I mean, both. I said it's 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 a thing of love. And to this day, if I when I went last time I went to uh, Beijing, uh, you know, um, uh, Wu Ben met me at the at the train station from one city to the other. He's looking for me. He saw me all the way across the room. And he went, coffee. <laughs> and you should have seen the people looking like, what is wrong? You don't call the guy chocolate. <laughs> And I'm sitting there going, no, 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 no. That's my teacher. That's that's my teacher. He can call me anything he wants because my name is Brown. You get it? And they were going, yes, but that's not an, and they were over there trying to explain to him, you shouldn't call him a, a, a chocolate. And I told him, let's, let's go. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's been a thing. And like I said, as soon as the pandemic is over, I'm headed back. Um, you know, they, uh, not for all the, not to learn any more Kung Fu. Uh, you know, yeah. at, at my age, I told them, I'm taking my students over because if you guys want to understand anything, you can. But if you expect me to get out on the floor now and be jumping and flying, I said, nah, I'll do some Tai Chi. Uh, because two reasons. I think that's going to be really big. The biggest um, classes in my school now are Tai Chi. Yeah, um, Got a lot of kids. A lot of kids. The dudes, it's hard to get them to come in. Yeah, because you know it's a different time now. They want to bang, but my kids' classes are huge, and my Tai Chi classes are really big. I mean, I'm teaching a lot of my friends Tai Chi. Said, I know you're in another system. Put some Tai Chi in your school. The, the, the country is aging, and that whole internal thing is is going to grow. Oh, question. No, yeah, I, talk, I, talk I like a lot. that. <laughs> so, I mean, you you said that you came from a very poor background. What would 
I mean, when you were in China, you said that they were poor. Was it different in China versus in America, or was it basically poor was poor? You know, they were poor, but they didn't know they were poor because everybody in China was poor. Yeah, nobody had a tractor. You'd see the the dad out there with a a, a hoe. His wife's got straps on. His two kids got straps, and they're pulling it because they couldn't afford a a thing. Nobody had cars. When I was there, I should mention that. Uh, can you imagine sitting in the middle of Tiananmen Square? That's between Tiananmen Square and the Forbidden City. It's five lanes of highway. I'm on a bike, which they had told me don't leave the barracks without an escort because you, yeah. you're different. Yeah. But I had borrowed one of the team guys' bikes and gone downtown to get some gifts for my, for my, my family. And I found myself in a, in a uh, traffic jam in the middle of between Forbidden City and Tiananmen Square. The traffic was totally stopped. Traffic jam in both directions, as far as you can you can look, in both directions. I'm on a bike, and I realize I look around, and everybody in front is looking back. People from both sides are looking to the side. The people behind me is they're pointing, and Peter Pidan, <laughs> stinky eggs. Um, he said they're not looking at me. They can't tell what kind of Chinese I am because I'm Mexican. I got these guys straight. You had that Afro over there, man. He said, they, they're not looking at me. They're looking at you. Yeah. I said, oh, man. We, and people were coming over, touching me and doing stuff. And Peter's just laughing. He said, they told you do not leave the barracks without, without escort. Yeah. I said, we've been here a month now. We know everybody. We just borrowed the bikes from the teammates. Can I borrow your bike? We're going into town. Um, it was, you know, it, it, it was such a different, different time. I wouldn't have missed it. I don't think anybody will ever see, very few Americans will ever see the China that we saw. I mean, we were so blessed. We didn't know it. Um, you know, we, we, well, we knew it was exciting. Uh, we didn't realize that it'd be many, many years before things totally opened up. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's, I came back with a whole different love of the art because they loved it. I mean, four or five of the top champions in, on the Beijing team, top team in China, um, ended up living with me. I you know, brought them over and they lived for a few months in my house before they, they went over and all like that. Um, Jet Li's first movie, Shaolin Temple. Yep. Uh, Shaolin, I think it was Shao, just Shaolin. Uh, I was in China at the Shaolin Temple when he started, when he, when he made that movie. Oh, really? We were, they had put us in, we couldn't stay in the temple. It's not like it is now with electricity and lights and beds. It was Shaolin Temple. It was really rusky, uh, rusky. And, and uh, we, they put us up in a hotel five miles in, in town, the only place that took foreigners. And I'm sleeping at night and I hear all these people out in the hallway making noise and we're Americans, I don't get any sleep. These guys out there beating on walls and all like, all night long. We got no sleep. We got up the next morning to prepare to go out, go up to the Shaolin Temple, and we saw all these little guys out there with bald heads and the gray tops and the pants and the little kung fu shoes and and all like that. And they're just going through all these amazing fight scenes with weapons and this and that and that that all this stuff. And we stood out there and just watched them. Get on the bus. We got to go. It's the tour is giving. We got we. We sat there and watched them all, and I snapped pictures of, of uh, a bunch of the guys that were, um, this was another first, 
Uh, got the guys that were out there performing, these little guys that we wanted to tell them, y'all don't run the halls this morning because they were young guys. Well, I got back and I found out the guy that I shot the picture of is jumping through the air in one of the scenes and he's got the legs cocked straight, perfect sidekick flying through the air. And uh, I came back and tried to put that in my Yellow Pages ad. But Yellow Pages is yellow. Wasn't a good photographer. The, the thing was kind of grainy. So the lady said to me, um, I made a line drawing of it. That's what it was, a line drawing. And I'm going to use that. And that became the logo for my school. All my uniforms has that guy, the Chinese guy with the bald head flying through the air and all like that. And it wasn't until years later that I found out that the kid that I, the young man, he wasn't really a little kid, the young man that I shot the picture of was Jet Li. And he was making his first movie, <laughs> Shaolin, and wow. you know, running up the running up the steps, the with the steps, and all that kind of stuff, and and it, it was just crazy time. I look at it now, and years, years later, when I when I, uh, I, I met him, I think it was here in, in the state somewhere, and made probably New York, and I am standing there, and everybody's trying to get autographs. I don't know, autograph. I got his autograph. He's he's, he's Wu Ben, my instructor's guy i went over there and i went to tell him you want to you want you you aren't gonna believe this see this logo this patch i got and all my t-shirts and everything that that bald head guy flying through there i was just about to say it's you you know you never met me then but i took this picture and my wife was a lot smarter than me she yeah. said shut up <laughs> he's in america now he's got an agent and you're getting ready to tell him that everything that you own, your jackets, your t-shirts, your uniforms, that logo that's on there, that guy flying, that Kung Fu guy flying, is you. <laughs> and I went, ah, uh, ah, yeah. And she said, so just walk away, <laughs> walk away. Cause he may not care. He has money, he's doing well and all like that. Said, but his handlers, the people that are got him in the movies and you know his guys his business people if they're sitting there going really all of all of those things are that's that's him that's his likeness and uh I, and i didn't get it out so luckily <laughs> I, I walked away i did go over and talk to him and told, told him that i was at the at the uh the same hotel that when he was shooting the, the first movie uh, but i never forgot that i probably would have been a broke a broke broke dude today yeah, because he wasn't as large as he, he turned out to be. But, um, but you know, there's a thousand stories. Like I told you, a thousand stories in the Forbidden City. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's that experience. And, and yeah, what has been the, the greatest thing of, of my career? Yeah, it's not, running, it's not winning trophies and all like that. I love being on the tournament circuit and, and traveling with all the greats and all like that for so many years, for a decade or more. Um, but it's because we had all these great friends and, and people from all walks of life, all nationalities. And we were all just these friends. We were the top guys on the circuit. You can see I don't wear these things too often. Um, we were the top guys on the circuit and we're all still friends now. And some of them have gone on to become, can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you fine. Okay. Um, we've gone on to do a lot of things, but we all still consider each other friends. I said, that's what I remember about the martial arts. I don't care about the trophy. In fact, by the time I finished competing over 10, 15 years, I must have had 
800 trophies, you know, you go to those things and bring them home and put them in your basement. It got to the point, my whole basement, there was no place to walk. And I told yeah. George one day when I spoke to him, I said, one day I just got up and looked at him. Nobody comes to my house. Nobody goes to my basement. I have a pool table I've never used because there's no room because there's trophies everywhere. I bought it. I got a U-Haul and made <laughs> two trips to a landfill and threw them all away. Nice. <laughs> I told my wife, she said, what are you going to, I said, I keep dusting them. We don't have visitors. Nobody comes home. My, my, you know, my friends come over and they go, wow, and that's like one time. And then nobody says anything about them. You know, so they, it, it's not the trophies. It's not all the awards you, you won. It's not, you know, it, it's the people that I met. It's not the, the, the movie that I went over and did. I told you about the, the, the movie. I want to talk to you about that. So what was, I want to talk to you about after you finish. Oh, okay. It, it, it wasn't the movie and all the other things. It was the people that, that we met that I still know today. Uh, in, in terms of martial arts, just in my community and in all the different cities, I can go everywhere. I go to New York. I know some people there. I go to Chicago. I know, you know, there's martial artists everywhere. You can go in and you got brothers and sisters. And one of my sayings is that in martial arts family, in martial arts, it's a family and family is forever. You know, and that's, that's, that's something that I've, I've actually lived by. But the, the, the movie is a whole nother family. Because, you know, I told you, 60s, I was a, I was a nut about driving five hours every Friday when I got off my good government job. Drive five miles to go to five theaters up there, the Sun Sing, the Canal, the Bowery. You know, some of us can still tell you every one of those five movies. And people say, you still don't? I said, no, I went every Friday. I had a little Volkswagen. I was the only one with a license. The other vagabonds would go to sleep and ride up. We'd yeah. watch double features at every movie and drive back and, 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 and teach. And we found out later that, you know, it was the Shaw brothers. This is, they're the guys that started the, the, the five deadly venoms and all those guys that went on to become like uh, Ching Kun Tai and all these great, great Chinese movie stars. Um, but right around 60, I guess it's 65, 60, 65, I guess it is. Not really good with all these numbers now. 64, 65, but it was late in the year, so I think it went over. But say 65, I, I got invited by some of those people that ran the, the theaters. We had one theater like that in D.C., and I used to bring all my students every Saturday to watch Kung Fu movies. And so I got to become real good friends with them. And one day they called and said, you know, we came out and we saw you competing at a tournament. You know, you're out there with all those karate people. Do you ever think about doing Kung Fu? I said, I do Kung Fu, but all my friends just happen to be karate. There's not a lot of big Kung Fu tournaments around. They said, well, we're getting ready to go to China, yeah. to Taiwan, to, Taiwan uh, to do movies. And we've been asked to give them somebody that would like to do a movie. And I kind of went, you want me to go to China to do a movie? They said, well, it would be in Taiwan. You speak a little Mandarin. I said, I speak a little Mandarin, um, but I don't, I don't teach, uh, not, not the, you know, the one that's in Taiwan. I teach, I mean, I speak uh, Cantonese. I don't speak Cantonese, uh, Chinese. I speak mainland. And they said, well, still, but you can speak a little bit. I said, yeah. They said, well, we'd like, we propose, we've given your name to a group of people in China about you doing a movie. That's the sound I made. 
silence. <laughs> doing a movie. Say, guys, wait a minute. I'm just this little kung fu guy from Northeast DC. They said, no, we want you to go over. We, you've been coming to our theaters forever. And we know about the trip to China, the New York. When you're not in our theaters on Sunday, you're up there in New York. So yeah, I come every, I've never missed one. So they set it up for me to go to China to do a movie. And I was just so excited. I got my best little stuff together. I trained hard because they gave me a, a three week notice. Training hard, almost killing myself. I wanted to be as cut as I could be. And I remember when I got this long trip to, to Taiwan, they said China, but it was actually Taiwan. I got there when I got off the plane, cause I'm thinking, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be doing a, some bit parts, you know, a little side thing. Uh, you know, I'm gonna be the guy that gets beat up. You know, you know it, I'm, I'm gonna die in the movie or something like that. I get there and I'm coming off the plane. It must've been, I swear to you, 25 photographers. Pictures are just clicking and clicking. Mr. and Mrs. Huang are coming down the steps with me. The, the, the producer, Chung Che, he's down there with his wife and everybody's snapping pictures. I'm standing there taking pictures. I'm starting to think, okay, wait a minute. This, I'm not an extra here. Cause I'm already bragged that I went to China and was extra in a Kung Fu movie. And they got to asking me all kinds of questions and how long have you studied Kung Fu and Chung Che and his wife is doing all this. The next day I'm on the front page of all the Chinese magazines. Chung Che is saying, my newfound star from America. So what? They put me up in the first hotel. That was the name of it. It was the most luxurious hotel. They call it the first hotel. Gave me a budget, a, a, a thing, you know, you're going to have, you don't need any money. Just eat. Anything you want to buy, put it on the tab. And after, and they gave somebody said, look out for him. And that way movies go, I didn't know. I thought they shot movies like you see them. This piece, this piece. But you know, they do B-roll all over the place and then they come back and they'll shoot the last part of the movie and then come back and do this. I didn't know all that. I'm, I'm there for almost a week and a half. I called home and told my wife said, they put me up in a really nice hotel and every day I go for a walk for about three hours because I'm stuck in the hotel. She said, well, where is everybody? I said, I don't see anybody. There's nobody here. And she said, well, I'm worried. I said, I don't think they even realize I'm here. She called them and said, Dennis is at the hotel. He's really worried. Do y'all know he's still at the hotel? They sent one of these guys over to get me on a little scooter, a little motorcycle. And he came and says, everything all right? They said that you're, you're, you're concerned that, that you're not being treated well. I said, no, no, no. I just don't, I don't go outside because I don't speak the language. And I don't know, I don't go to the restaurants and stuff because I don't know how to order the food. I mean, he said, well, you can get anything you want at the hotel. It's written in English. You can translated and then they'll bring they'll bring it to your room I said no but how long am i going to be and so finally they said well what is your board yeah so what are you guys doing so we're making the movie so why am i well it's not to your scenes yet i said so i've been sitting here for a week just waiting for you guys to get to my scene he said yeah we're shooting that's when the first time i heard the word b-roll they go you're gonna be a nightclub you don't need to be in this scene we just shooting stuff around that's okay okay they said, so they called Chang Chair back and said, he's getting bored. He wants to go home. I never said that. I said, no, I don't want to go home. I called my wife because I was thinking they done lost me. They forgot I'm here. Well, they finally brought me to the set. They said, you're going to get bored. None of your scenes are coming up. You can just sit here and watch. So I see this old guy that was at the airport with all the folks and he's, he's directing 
and these guys are directing all the fight scenes and all like that. And uh, let me shorten this story by saying it was almost another 10 days before they got to any scenes with me. What was the movie? It was called The Dancing Warrior over there. And over here was called The Venoms. And that's when it got me. The best movie I'd ever seen in the 60s was The Five Deadly Venoms. And, and I'm shooting all these scenes. They're putting these fight scenes together. They take these two guys and they would put it together. Okay, you do this and then I'll do that. Then I'll flip like this and then you do that and I do that and do that. And then they look at me and go, Donis, you got it? I said, oh, what, was I supposed to be looking at that? He'd go, yeah. And they, they would get, okay, we'll do it again. You watch. And they would do it like three times. And then they look at me and say, okay, you ready to shoot? I said, no, we can't shoot it. I only saw it three times. And that was the whole time I was there. I got really good at that. But the, the, the story of it was, the, 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 I found out later on that in the movie, they called me Donis. And the name of the school was Shaolin, which was the name of my school that they said, I said, so I'm playing me? They said, yeah, you're playing you. And the movie is The Dancing Warrior. And uh, it's about a martial artist who really loves ballet dancing and, and, you know, club dancing and stuff like that. And I said, oh, here it is. The black guy's got to be dancing. I don't tap dance. I don't do, I, I can't really do good. I don't have to start the clubs. They said, no, 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 he is. They pointed out he's got, he's the dancing warrior. He's a Kung Fu guy, but he doesn't like Kung Fu. He really wants to go to America and become a famous dancer. I said, well, who am I? He said, well, you're, the, you're a American who lives here and has opened up a Kung Fu school and we sent him to you so you could teach him how to fight and so, or something like that. And I said, oh, okay. So now we started to shoot, now I know who I am. They shot some of the scenes, they, they said some of the scenes were amazing. I ended up fighting in the, uh, in the boxing ring. I did full contact stuff. But the scenes, these guys would get together and they put together a fight scene with like, not three or four steps or four or five, it's like 15 steps. He do this and then you dunk and he does that and then you kick and you do this. And I'm sitting there looking and say, please God, can I see it one more time? And they would almost like amateur. Gee, I, it's amateur. But we finished the movie. The movie was great movie. I found myself telling my wife on the phone, they're shooting a great movie. I'm just, I'm just embarrassed that they got me in it. You know, and the guys became friends. I went to their homes, ended up going to meet their families and all like that. It wasn't until the end of the movie that I found out that the old guy that was sitting over there, that was the last movie he ever made. He was Chung Cher. He was the top director for Run Run and Run Me Shaw Brothers in the 60s when all the great movies, Kung Fu movies were being made. And he would name the movies he had done. I've seen all of those. And they said, you know, the movie, The Five Deadly Venoms, one of them was The Centipede, and one was this, and one was The Cricket, and one was, they had nicknames. The guy you riding around with, Lu Fong, that's The Centipede. You know, but they wore the, you know, the long hair with the thing, and they wore all the white makeup, and, you know, they did those old yeah. movies. Yeah. They were in full, full drag, I called it. And I said, wait a minute. These guys that I've been going to the movies with and hang out, they took me to nightclub because they had a black guy to go down there and dance. They said, do you know, do, do you know, uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Little Black, they call him. I don't know, Shao, Shao Hei, Shao Hei, it means Little Black. And they said, I said, no, I don't think I know him. He said, he's a black guy. He's a nightclub 
DJ. We want to take you to a nightclub. And we got a really guy from Chicago as a DJ, but he was the only black guy they knew. And he had the place packed because they could, you know, they can dance. I mean, we're starting to find that out now. They can really dance. And they, they're going to take you to meet him so you won't feel so bad. I went up there and said, yeah, I'm from Chicago. I came here with a band and never left. And because I could knew music, I played music. And I said, so he said, so you're, you're the guy doing the movie? He said, you don't even know who these guys are, do you? I said, no. He said, you'll find out. I'm going on the elevator to leave the thing, and everybody's looking on the elevator because they had put me on the cover of all the magazines, the, the entertainment magazines. And I looked, and I'm getting all up in myself, and I realized they weren't looking at me. They were looking at Lou Fong and those guys. And I'm looking, they're not looking at me. So when they got off the elevator, the kids said, are you guys famous or something? And they said, no, we've done some movies. So I thought you guys just stuck guys. Well, they took me to the theater that night and Run Run Shaw movies were playing that night with all the five deadly venoms. I mean, these guys are flying and uh, just all the stuff I loved when I was a, a young boy. And I looked at him and he came going by with the long plaid on and, and you know, they, they fly through the trees and all that stuff and kick people. And I looked at him and I went, is that you? And he goes, yes. I said, wait, wait a minute, is it? And they said, we are the five deadly venoms. I said, oh my God, I saw a picture of you guys in your regular clothes and without all this makeup on. And the five deadly venoms, you guys were teaching Bruce Lee. I got a black and white picture of you five guys teaching Bruce Lee fight scene. Say, so, yeah, he used to come over and study with us. I said, I have, I'm the only one probably got a picture. I'm the only one that got a picture of all five of you guys standing with Bruce Lee and y'all are working on fight scenes. And he said, well, you need to send it to us. I said, no, it's back home. It's one of my terrace, it's on my table. And I'm sitting there realizing I'm sitting in the theater with the five deadly venoms. And that was the scariest thing in my life. I wasn't afraid then because I just knew I'm, I'm just not very good compared to these guys here in China, but hey, I'm making a movie. And uh, so it turned out they make you look really good. Yeah. I looked at the fight scenes and later on, when, you know, when they went back and did rushes and we watched the fight scenes, I, quite often I wouldn't say it out loud. I said, boy, actually, I actually look pretty, pretty good. <laughs> you know, it was fast. Everything was fast. The Shaw brothers, really quick movement and stuff like that. I said, they're making a great movie. It's just a shame they got me in it to mess it up. I mean, I actually felt like that. And so I it came back here and um and like I said, the only one um and I hung out with Lu Fong, he stayed in touch with me. I didn't meet him again until they have that uh that big thing up in New York now, the Urban Action Film Festival that they give and all the Kung Fu greats, all the movie stars and everybody, dragon folks, they're all there, black dragon and a this dragon and a that dragon. And I, I went up there to see it. Uh, and the 42nd Street was where all the movies, if you're in New York, you know, that's where all the Kung Fu movies were played back in the day. Yeah. And um, I went up there to see it, got a hotel in a little room across the street, real cheap hotel. But I went to go into the theater, you know, because I wanted to come and see Shaw Brothers movies, you know, it's a little flashback for me. There was a line, you know, those theaters I didn't know had like three floors with escalators. There was a line coming down all three or four floors 
and then out the theater, 42nd Street, and down to the end of the block. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm not going to be able to get in. I go up the escalators, and they made me pay to get in. I go up the escalator. I'm trying to say, I'm Dennis Brown. Hey, go get your ticket, man. <laughs> okay, I'll go get my ticket. I get up. I'm following, the, uh, squeezing past everybody up the escalator, and they're looking at me like, we're in the line. I said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing I get to the top of the, the line that goes over to a table, and there's this guy sitting there signing autographs. And somebody said, you know, it's one of the, the, the five deadly venoms over there. I said, yeah, I saw it. I said, one of the five deadly venoms is here as their special guest. They brought him in from Taiwan. And I get over there, and I'm looking over the line, and the lady who's handling him, he's writing and just handing pictures up like this, autograph. He ain't even looking up. And the lady looks at me and goes, sir, I don't care who you are. You have to go to the back of the line. These people, she's just wearing me out. They've been here. Some of these people have been online three hours to get his autograph because he's, this is where they played his movies on 42nd Street. And I, and I said, ma'am, ma'am, I'm, I'm not trying to be ugly. I, I'm not here to get an autograph. I don't want a picture. He goes, she goes, what? And I flipped through the pictures I had of them and I just threw it on the table. This is God's truth. And he went to grab it to sign it. And he looked up. He jumped up on the table and went, coffee! <laughs> and he ran around the table. All these people waiting in line. It looked like I'm breaking the line. He jumps up and hugs me. And I'm going, what? he said, what are you doing here? I said, no, we ain't in Taiwan. You're in my city now. What are you doing here? And he started telling me they brought me over and they're going to have a film festival and they're showing some of the old movies. And it was the greatest time of my life. The lady kept looking at me going, sir, People are waiting in the line. I said, look, man, I'm going to, I'm going to get a hotel room. We're going to go out to eat. And that was one of the, the best feelings of my life. A lot of my, my people, when they were, had brought him up on the stage, um, I sat way in the back. And he was saying, Coffee, come on up. I said, no, this is your time, man. I, it's not that. But I, was, I, I think that was one of the best times. I said, I was concerned that you wouldn't even remember me. You know, I had black hair then. You know, I looked like Teddy Pendergrass back then with the beard and the little short afro. Now I look like Al Sharpton. You know, I got, <laughs> I got the, the hair all pulled back. I said, uh, I didn't even think you'd remember me, man. He said, so since then, I've gone back to China once with my, Mr. Lin for the Bai Shear ceremony. And yeah. he caught a train two hours from uh, tai, Taipei down to Taichung to, uh, to, to be with me for the days I was there with Mr. Lin. And I uh, got to hung out. And, and we were walking across the street, and he said, what do you think? Would you ever consider doing another movie? I said, man, look at me. I, I can't, I'm, I'm not the black dragon. I'm not the, the urban dragon. I'm not even a dragon at all now. We just laughed. And after we got through eating, he said, no, I'm, I'm serious about that. I'm thinking about doing something, bringing some folks in. Now you wouldn't be the guy doing all that, but you'd be one of the old masters in the movie. I said, you know what, talk to Mr. Lin. I said, you're not serious, but if it gets me a free trip back to Taiwan, I'll I'll come over and, and be somebody that says something. So yeah. that, you know, that was my, my movie thing. And, and I was got picked up to do another one just before the pandemic. But we were heading over. Yeah. They had a little script they sent to me. And I said, this so you guys know, I can't jump and spin in the air anymore, any of that kind of stuff. So no, no, you wouldn't be the, the, the that guy. You'd be the you'd be the instructor of that guy. I said, oh, OK, well, I can play that part. I can play the old guy. But uh, yeah, but I, that was that was one of the great experiences of my of my life. Uh, 
the guys did such a good job putting them to get putting it together. And I know how hard the work is to do that. And they would they actually told me at that time, if you'd be willing to bring your wife over here um, and live here in uh, in 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 Taiwan in, in uh, Taiwan at that time uh, in Hong Kong because we we had moved from we had moved to Hong Kong. Um, he said, you know, we 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 could we we could do a, maybe a movie a year or something. And they asked me about Cynthia Rothrock because they knew about her, and they would say, you know, you could stay here in Hong Kong, and you know, we could we could write some scripts around you. I said, oh man, I got a family. I got two daughters who are in school. And I feel good about it, but I, I don't have that kind of ego. I I'm going home. So you know, I, and I still know him. He still writes me. That one guy still writes me every so often, and says, you know, I'm, I'm going to come to your, your your tournament. So I told him, if you want to come to Capital Classic, you don't have to tell anybody. Um, you know, just come on over. I'll take you up on the stage and do like I did with uh, some of the other guys. But again, that was an experience. Um, that's one of those things like June Re. People don't know that you actually studied with June Re. Um, some people know. And I know you did movies. I said, no, I didn't do a lot of movies. I did a, a one movie and I did a, a really nice documentary. I've done a couple documentaries on Kung Fu uh, in China and all like that. I said, but that's been been my career but you don't fight said so i did fight I, I don't i i was a forms guy in, on the chinese on the karate circuit because you know we and i won the kung fu division every year but i mean every tournament that that i, I that i could go to said so, but I, you guys didn't know me as a fighter i fought on the chinese circuit um in the 70s and they were it was all full contact it's like our uh, UFC stuff today. They put you in the ring, gloves, thin gloves, put a little thing on you. And you just beat each other to death. Where all the Chinese instructors in Chinatown stood around and bet, and bet on you yeah. and all like that. They said you were around then. I said, yeah. I, was, I went to Boston to fight up there. My instructor would drive all the way to Boston from D.C. to let me fight whoever the top dog was there. I said, but the difference was the guy I was fighting had just come from home. I had to drive Mr. Lin all the way to Boston. <laughs> He's my sherpa, and then we'd get a room, and then that night I'd be in the ring fighting. I said I fought like that. I said, but I I never did. I never got into the point fighting. I never learned. Never really got into. Well, you give the Capital Classics is one of the biggest tournaments on the NASCAR circuit, North American circuit. Say, yeah, I was the only kung fu guy when they started it. I'm still the only kung fu guy in the room when we started deciding on divisions and rules for fighting and all like that. And then they go, hey, you don't know anything about this. But uh, again, I've had a a great career. You know, it, it's been up and down from the vagabond guys. I always like to include them in my life because if I hadn't met them in the basement of that school, I always like to give credit to Master Ree because Mr. Lin was my instructor. Yeah. But uh, to the day he died, I told all his black belts, I said, yeah, but he wasn't lying. His the basics that he taught me, I took to kung fu with me, and uh, and and like I said, Mr. Lin is still around, and I still run my school. I still teach his system, um, and I, I still respect him as my instructor. What about all them guys you trained with in China? Wu Bin, uh, don't know. They're all my teachers. They've been my teachers over years, and every time I go to China, I've worked with some great teachers, but Mr. Lin is my event he's 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 my he's the number one he's my 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 master instructor so uh that's 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 been part of the career 
So we've been on for almost two hours, and I'm loving all the stories. But I wanted to ask you, um, so what keeps you motivated to keep training all these years? It's simple. <laughs> all right. I really like Kung Fu. I think it's a privilege to be able to find something that you love to do and, be, and then find somebody like Nick Kokinas who can show you how to make a living and raise your family and, and have a nice home and all like that yeah. and doing stuff you like to do. My father and folks like that, he was a cook. Uh, he died early, but, um, you know, they spend their whole life doing something that they don't like to do, but they have to do it for money or they don't dislike it, but they wish they were doing something else, but can't make no money doing that. Uh, I said, you know, I, I got into Kung Fu and uh, I love doing Kung Fu. I, I, you know, sometimes I go in my office, even now, you know, I'm almost 75 and I'll sit in my office and go, Dennis, you do Kung Fu for a living. <laughs> Everybody else goes to their job where they make their real living. And in the evenings they do Kung Fu for fun yeah. or as a hobby or to learn how to fight or to stay in shape. You get to do, you get to get up every morning and do Tai Chi and do this and people pay you to do this. I, I really think it's a privilege and it irritates me when people who are running schools don't really appreciate it. It becomes all about the money. It becomes all about this, uh, uh, you know, the first thing I said is find something that you love to do and never work a day in your life. You know, if you're blessed to do that. So, I mean, I really enjoy watching. I, I teach mostly now. I'm, I'm never going to be in a competition, <laughs> maybe a little demonstration every now and then. But I love watching the martial arts change people's lives. The, the kids become more disciplined and more focused and how many of them have gone to college and all, and their parents come back after all these years and say, you know what they're doing? And they attribute it to martial arts. And it just makes me feel like, it's kind of, kind of like a minister. You know, my grandfather was a Baptist minister. And, uh, and, and when, I, when my mother couldn't take care of us and the railroad track house got torn down, I had to go live with, with you know, with, 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 with some other, other people. I find myself in a situation where um, uh, I had to live with my grandfather and he was a country Baptist minister. I mean, a serious, you know, the one steeple thing with the outhouse outside. (laughs) He was that kind of uh, Baptist minister. And uh, I remember him saying, they said, Reverend Reverend Butler, when when are you ever going to stop preaching? And I was a youngster then. I remember him saying, how do you quit? from preaching. How do you quit a job? It's not a job. I don't have a job. I have a calling. Being a minister is not a job. Luckily, if you have a good little church, they'll give you some money or the sisters will bring you your dinner every Sunday. It's it's country time. And uh, he said, but how did I I never, he preached until he died. And he used to always say, if I had a job, I would have retired and quit a long time ago. But this is something, this is a calling. And I tell everybody to this day, they say, Master Man, why are you still teaching? You and your wife still struggling or something? Or I said, no, I get one of the biggest tournaments in the country. I go to China, I travel around the world. But why are you still, you, you don't sit in the office. I see you on the floor working with beginners. I said, first of all, I love doing it. 
it's like an artist that said, why are you still out there? Let somebody else paint for you now. <laughs> You've made your money. You said, it's not a job for me. It's a calling. And I hear my grandfather saying, it's a calling. How do you quit something you were called to do? Um, if I quit, close down my school and, and stop doing it, within a few months, I'd go to some rec center <laughs> and say, so y'all got a karate club here? <laughs> Y'all, y'all want somebody to come in and teach the, the kids at the YMCA how to do some, I'm really good at it, you know, that kind of thing. And I, and I, I joke about it, but it, it is, I will always do martial arts. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I want to be teaching every class, but I love when I walk on the floor. In fact, my wife tells me that everybody else, your class is supposed to be 45 minutes. Every class, every, every person else in the school that teaches, they hit it right. The class starts at 11, 7.45, over. We, we always put the class that you teach at the end. You know why? Because if your class is supposed to start at 12 and it's supposed to be at 12.45, you're still teaching at 1.30. And they're out there looking at the clock. I, I know it's my school. I want to go over. Y'all mind if I go a little further? That's, that's my life. My wife is going out. It's 1 o'clock. Everybody wants to go. I said, you know, I, I really love teaching Kung Fu. And I'm really honored that I'm able, I'm, I'm physically in shape to be able to get out on the floor. That's the second thing. I mean, a lot of guys don't, don't stay in shape and they don't, they're not fortunate health-wise to be able to do it. And third thing is that people still want to come and study with me. You know, I know you've seen me in the, you know, the magazines or at the tournament or something like that, or your cousin told you about me or something, but I'm, I'm still honored you know, and somewhat baffled that people still want to come in and go, is this Dennis Brown? My cousin studied, my father studied with you. <laughs> so how old is your father now? Well, he's like 40 now. I said, okay. Uh, and so now I'm teaching his son. No, I'm his grandson. You know, I said, okay. But it, it, it's not a truth to that. I mean, I tell people, if you don't enjoy it, if it gets to the point where it's only about the money, do something else. Yeah, uh, and uh, as for me, I'll continue to teach as long as uh, somebody will come in and go. I'd like to study with you, me, you know. So it's 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 sincere in that sense. I mean, I, I'm I'm really humbled because a lot of the guys that started with me in the '60s are gone. You know, you watch them dying off one at a time, and uh, yeah, I see guys coming up to me now saying, "Man, I, I'm in my '60s now." Yeah, how long? How long are you gonna teach? I said, well, you sound like you think I'm your age. <laughs> I said, I'm already old. I've been old for 15, 20 years already. And it's if it's if you can, <laughs> I've been old for a long longer than I was young. I think because you're young until you're 21, then you you're full of yourself. I said, but I've I've been old. I said, I people keep pulling up to the door and coming in and and stuff like, and, or people like you will call and say, I, same thing with Andrina. She said, well, he wanted to know if you would do a, a, a come on his podcast. He, he want, has he heard how much I talk? <laughs> she said, you talk too much. That's why your class, because your class is supposed to be over 45 minutes and you talk for an hour and a half. I said, I know, I know. So I, I literally said, I said, tell him I talk a lot. He's got to be willing to, to cut some stuff because, you know, I, I, I it's, but it's been a long story. I mean, the story goes back for me to, 65 actually and 
and I, I look at it and say, this has been a long, long time. And I guess I should be out back cutting the grass or something. But why would you do that when you can still get on the floor and work the bag and all that kind of stuff? So And teach Kung that's Fu. That's kind of been the story. And teach Kung Fu for a living. And still little kids come up and go, you teach Kung Fu? <laughs> the guy comes to fix my roof. You know, I'm going to give you a price on this. And I said, and, and he looked at me, he, he was in my basement, he looked at me, I saw all these Kung Fu weapons and stuff. So oh, you take some karate? I said, yeah, a little bit. And he said, you know, I took Taekwondo, I did this, I did that. I said, yeah, I, I did a little bit of that too. Next week, the next day he come back and said, yeah, I looked you up online. Are you that Grandmaster Brown? I said, no, you're in my house, I'm just Dennis Brown. He goes, you're that... And that's why I joke about that Kung Fu guy. They never say grandmaster. He said, you're that Kung Fu guy here in DC, right? I go, yeah, I'm that Kung Fu guy, but I know other stuff. <laughs> I can do stuff other than Kung Fu. But yeah, that's, it's, it's, been, it's been a journey. And I think anybody who's blessed to do what you love doing and people still, generations are coming in. And I taught you. Is that your son? I, you know, I taught your father. He goes, no, that's my grandfather. You taught my grandfather and my father. This, I said, oh, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> and he said, I, my son told me to bring, I drive him because I'm retired. My son is working, so I'm driving. And I go, I remember your son. And he goes, yeah, they told me if you're going to put him in martial arts, you know, drive the extra half an hour over to Master Brown School. I said, well, tell him I said hello and tell him I said family is forever. So I expect him to get his butt back in here before he gets too old and can't walk. Nice. <laughs> and uh, but that's, that's, my, that's, that's the way I feel about stuff. Tell your granddad. I, got, I do Tai Chi too. I know he's too old. But if somebody walked up and smacked him in the face right now, could he look at him and say, well, I'd hurt you if I wasn't old? You'd have to fight him with your old bones. Just what? So I'm going to train you to protect yourself with the tools you have. You can't do all them wheel kicks and all that stuff no more. So we're going to work with you on some stuff that can protect you now. And if you were a real martial artist and you remembered what I told you, you would know that. I wouldn't be in here trying to say, well, can you do a butterfly kick? Said, no, man, you're 80. But I can teach you how to defend yourself. And that's, I think that's what real instructors should, should, should be doing. Nice. So I'm going to wrap it up, but I want to ask you the last question and then I'll let you go. Uh, do you have any advice for anybody that's just getting started with martial arts or? Yeah. After June Ree and Willie Lin and Wu Bin and Nick Kokinas and all these great martial artists, mentors, I would call yeah. it, make sure that you find something, a system that you really like. Don't don't go into it because somebody else looks good. Take the time to find a system that you really like. Don't go for your black belt just because you want a black belt. Go for it for the knowledge. You know, black, black, I don't really care about black, but like I said, I don't really, Kung Fu doesn't really have black belts. I just call myself a black belt. Um, but more importantly, if you decide that you want to do this for a living, Make sure you're not doing it for the money. That's okay. the one thing that hurts me most about. And I want all martial arts schools to run and be successfully, financially successful, but only because if you can't keep your school open, you can't help anybody. So you got to feed. So be successful. Learn the business of martial arts. 
but don't teach because of that. Teach because you love doing it and you want to make a difference. And if you do that, you'll do it your whole life. When you're sick, you'll do it. When you're well, you'll do it. When when you're stressed out, you'll go to your school anyway and do it. But that's make sure it's something that you love to do. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. And, uh, yeah, that was an awesome conversation. And my wife probably told you if she didn't, if I got her before she told you, he talks too much. You know, I said, you do? I know I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guru. uh, I tell stories. I'm a, I'm a storyteller. I said, that's, that's what I, I I like to do. I said, uh, um, and I, my, that's, I run my classes run over because I start telling the story and somebody said, oh, I see the lesson in that. And I said, yeah, did you? Did you get it? I'm I'm Dr. Ho- I'm Dr. Hoffman, and the, the, the last class I had, I told him I said, you know, there's this story of this guy, this German guy, who was one of the greatest hypnotists in the world. They say, and he was from Germany, and he'd come to America. He was doing a show, and they they'd come out, and he'd come out and hypnotize everybody in, in the audience. And they said the way he do it, they, and they told him you're gonna love this guy. So when he, the curtains opened up, this 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 guy walks out with a tuxedo on and he looks at the audience and said, Dr. Hoffman is one of the most amazing hypnotists you're ever going to meet. I mean, he, he, he can put you to sleep like that. First, first thing he's going to do, he's going to say one and you're going to feel your whole body get heavy. And you're going to say, wow. He said, he's going, he says two, you're going to completely relax. I mean, like you're going to turn the jelly. And said, when he says three, your head's going to drop and your eyes are going to close. Ladies and gentlemen, he is the greatest hypnotist in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Hoffman. This little teeny guy walks out, looks at the audience and goes, one, two, three. Everybody goes out. (laughs) I said, you guys get the story? He goes, no. I said, who was the hypnotist? The first guy that came out. See, yeah, that was just his stand in. He was Dr. Hoffman. He was the one that said, I say one, this is going to happen. And when he says two, this is going. And when he says three, you're just going to be gone. And this is little German guy just walks out and goes, one, two, three. <laughs> I said, guys. When you take my class and I'm talking, ask yourself, who is Dr. Hoffman? Say, I'm going to come out. Everybody comes in. Master Brown's going to be teaching class tonight. And I'm going to have this guy do this and he's going to do this. And once you learn all of this stuff, you're going to be one of the most amazing martial artists in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, here's, and that's how I bring my instructors on. I said, guys, the instructors that are teaching for me, each one of you are Dr. Hoffman. And if I, tell it right to the students. If I introduce you correctly, you'll be able to teach much better than me. End of story, Dr. Hoffman. (laughs) Thank you, sir. All right. All right, Grandmaster Dennis Brown. I appreciate it. Hey, stay in touch with me, Jerry. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always here. In our next episode, we speak with coach Ian Lee, the head coach for the U.S. National Sonda team. Have you always wanted to learn how to use a sword? You can grab my free five-day online training course on the Korean sword. You'll learn how to draw the sword out correctly, all the basic cuts and stances, 
Afterwards, if you want to continue learning the sword, I have four different sets of videos which cover all the material up to fourth degree black belt. You can check it out at heidongumdovideos.com. That's H-A-I-D-O-N-G-G-U-M-D-O videos.com. Thanks for joining the Martial Arts Junkies podcast today. Make sure you like, follow, subscribe. We're on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Martial Arts Junkies and at MartialArtsJunkies.com. Hit us up in the comments. Let us know what you think.